Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Novelist Jill Paul takes iconic women of the 20th century, from the Duchess of Windsor to Diana, and from Jackie O to Maria Callas. She spins a magic story that combines fact with imagination and gives readers new insights into famous lives. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and in this week's binge reading episode, Jill talks about the romance of the Romanovs and her crazy passion for cutting the ice to go swimming. Jill's been kind enough to offer listeners a lovely Christmas bonus, a giveaway of two of her most recent books, the dual timeline story about the Romanovs, The Lost Daughter, and Another Man's Wife, the story of Wallace Simpson and Diana, Princess of Wales. Details for how to enter the draw for this exciting Royal Romance pack can be found on the Binge Reading Facebook page or on our website, thejoysofbingereading.com. Enter today for some fantastic holiday reading. But now, here's Jill. Hello there, Jill, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Jenny, it's wonderful to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. Now, I know that you did do other things before you started your writing. So was there a once upon a time moment where you thought, I've just got to write some fiction or my life won't quite be complete? And if so, what was the catalyst? (laughs) That's a great question. In fact, I wanted to write from when I was from probably when I started reading, I wanted to write books, but my parents steered me in a different direction towards studying medicine at university. And and then I worked, I switched and I worked in publishing for a while. And all the time I was trying to write novels, but I have to say in my teens or early twenties, they were really kind of miserable, um, autobiographical things about lost love affairs and parents not understanding you. And um, they were absolutely dreadful. I'm very glad none of them has ever seen the light of day. But in my 30s, I discovered a little writing group near where I live in North London, run by a woman called Carol Cornish, and she called it Writing Space. And it was just Friday evenings around her kitchen table. And she really encouraged us to describe in an original way, to um, really look at the things we were talking about, to probe deeper inside character and uh, just have original ideas for plot. And she was amazing. And three years after I started doing her writing space, I got an agent and my first publishing deal. So really, she was the magic catalyst for me. Fantastic. And what was that first book? Oh, gosh, that was ages ago. And (laughs) it's terrible. It's called Enticement. It It was a training novel, but it did get published by Hodder and Stoughton over here. So I'm quite grateful for that. It was um, a long time ago and it's not in print anymore. <laughs> okay, okay. I, d- I didn't quite know if because I couldn't remember if I'd seen it or not. But but your most recent book, The Lost Daughter, you return to the Romanov family. Now, you've really made a name for yourself with these novels that are partly based, in fact, with, with interesting people, but also a very lovely sort of story spun around them. And this is the yeah. second time you've you've used the Romanovs as 
a basis for a story. Your bestseller, The Secret Wife, also um, treated an aspect of the Romanovs. Tell us how you became interested in the Romanov family. Oh, that's, an, that's a teenage obsession of mine, actually. And when I was a teenager, the um, graves of the Romanovs hadn't been found. So there was still a possibility that some of them had escaped, that they might be living in quietly in exile somewhere. They might still be in Russia. And um, there was, a, you know, some very good books along those lines. So I was really excited about this missing royal family. Of course, then the graves turned up, first of all, in 1991, and then the second grave in 2007, and the DNA tests were pretty conclusive early on. So that was a disappointment. But it's just, it it really gets under your skin the fact that, you know, they felt that they could wipe out an entire royal family. You can understand Nicholas II, who'd been a particularly bad ruler. You can understand them wanting to get rid of the heir, Alexei, so that, the you know, nobody could come and try and put them back on the throne. But these four girls, it's just so cruel and unfair. And there's a kind of almost fairy tale aspect to it, except in fairy tales, the beautiful, innocent princesses are supposed to be rescued at the last minute and nobody came to rescue them. So it's just desperately unfair. And in my two novels, The Secret Wife, First of all, I write about Tatiana, who was the second daughter. And in the most recent one, The Lost Daughter, I write about Maria, the third daughter. And I try to give them a bit of an alternative what-if history, describing what happened to the family and what they were like as characters, but then a little bit of fantasy of what if maybe they had escaped. So that's that's my two Romanov novels. Yes. I don't, I'm not planning on doing another one at the moment, but you never know because they have really got under my skin. Yes. Um, Tatiana, was there any truth in the possibility that she may have not been there? I mean, I know that her body has now been discovered, hasn't it? But was there any chance that she could have not been there at the time when that awful massacre happened? Uh, no, I'm afraid <laughs> that in reality the the guards who executed them for example have left detailed test and testimonies that have been in soviet archives all these years so we know the horrible details of what happened to them we know that they were all there i mean tatiana did have a romance with a cavalry officer called called dimitri maluma and that's the that's what my story is about mm. and um, but we don't know what happened to him particularly after they were captured, um, apart from the fact that he was fighting in the Civil War in 1919, um, the, you know, fighting the Red Army. And, uh, yeah, I don't think he did try and rescue her, but I wish he had. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and it, it also was a little bit of an embarrassment even to the Soviets for quite a long time, wasn't it? It, it was something they didn't want to particularly face up to. So I'm interested that those very full accounts are still there in the archives. They are, they are. Well, when the graves were first discovered in 1991, Boris Yeltsin said that it was a great, it was a matter of great shame for the Russian government, the Soviet government. Mm. Um, But his successors have been less fulsome in in condemning it. And um, Putin himself nowadays is is quite czar-like in the way he just keeps going on and on as head of head of the Russian state. So um, I think he would have to be very careful about um, criticising absolute rulers. There's a a very fine line, you know, it wasn't kind of czarism versus Bolshevism, and that's not how they want it to be seen. I mean, the Russian Orthodox Church is still split down the middle on the bodies. 
they haven't yet given their full consent, those two factions in the church, and they haven't yet agreed that it's definitely the bodies of Alexei and Maria who were in the second grave. So they haven't yet been able to be buried with their par parents, which is, is so sad, you know, yeah. that um, just because they're wrangling. The thing is that they've been canonised as martyred saints. So they've got, to, you know, the church argument is that they've got to be 100% sure that they're burying the bones of the right people but it does it does seem such a shame that it can't be put to rest now yeah so the lost daughter is a dual timeline story that spread between the scene of the massacres in 1918 and sydney 55 years later and i know that yeah. you have spent time in australia you refer to it in various places but did you also have the pleasure of going to russia for your research I did indeed. Yes, just to St. Petersburg, where I was desperate to see the palaces. And they're just, they're even more glitzy than you probably imagine them. There's gold everywhere, there's precious jewels. And um, I mean, the whole of St. Petersburg is like this fantasy playground, beautiful churches around every corner. Um, one of my particular favourites was the Fabergé Museum, where they have, um, I think it's seven or eight of the original Fabergé eggs that the um, Tsar of Russia used to give to his mother and his wife at Easter, and they are exquisite, really, really beautiful. Unfortunately, they had glass covers over them, so I couldn't sort of pick them up and have a play. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of security guards standing around because they really are priceless. But I, I loved going to Russia. I also had a great time in Sydney as well, by the way. I was there for a couple of months and, and really, really enjoyed the city. It's a great place to live. I haven't been to New Zealand yet, Jenny, but um, I'd love to come sometime. Oh, I'm sure you'd like us. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, 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 I do have New Zealand friends. I just haven't managed to get over there yet. So I'll have yes. to remedy soon. You will, you will. Um, you've also tackled quite recently another royal romance, and that was the Wallace Simpson um, saga. And in Another Woman's Husband, you've tackled two of the most famous women of the 20th century, Wallace Simpson and Diana, Princess of Wales, and another dual timeline story, which was really, really fun. The Wallace Simpson side of it, I think, was very strongly historically accurate, and yeah. the Diana side was entirely fictional. Tell us about what, what drew you to that story. Do you know, I've always wanted to write about Wallace Simpson because I thought there was something a bit sexist about the way the history books and the biographers portrayed her as this evil scheming woman who had to get the Prince of Wales for herself, had to have every man fall in love with her that she met and and they made up all sorts of things about her which there's no foundation for whatsoever that she might have known some peculiar sexual tricks to make to make men come under their spells. Actually she was just a very bright, witty, fun woman and that's why people fell under her spell. But I decided to write about her and I wanted a kind of hook to make her more relevant to the present day. And then I found out that Princess Diana had visited her house just hours before she died in Paris in 1997. And that seemed extraordinary because, of course, there's so many parallels between the two women. They were both married to the Prince of Wales. They were both... Um, fashion icons of their day. They were both incredibly thin, borderline eating disorders on both sides. Just, there was, they were victimized, you know, they were bullied by the media. There was a lot that they had in common. And I thought I would try and wind two stories together and 
show what they had in common and, you know, obviously what was very different about Diana's case as well. And I had great fun doing it. Yes, look, it is funny that visit. I mean, of course, uh, Mohammed Al-Fayed was leasing that house from the city of Paris at the time, wasn't he? So, I mean, it could be as something as mundane as Dodie just wanted to go in and pick up a pair of trainers. But do we ever really know why she did go there? Well, maybe it was Dodie's trainers. That's a really good theory. But <laughs> after she died, Mohammed Al-Fayed said that they had been going to get married and that they were looking at that house with to, to decide whether they wanted to live there after they were married. And... Um, that's quite an extraordinary claim, given that the CCTV um, um, shows that they only spent 20 minutes there that day, Diana and Dodie, and Diana stayed in a downstairs office the entire time. So it re doesn't really look as though she was wondering, when, wondering whether her furniture would fit or, you know, measuring yeah. her curtains or anything like that. It just doesn't ring true. Um, and also Diana's friends say she was dating Dodie, she was having fun, there's absolutely no way... She was engaged to him. And also that house is completely wrong for her because it's surrounded by the Bois de Boulogne on all sides and people can see in. It's very exposed. It really doesn't make sense that um, that they were going there to think about possibly living there. I don't believe that for one minute. Yes, yes. In your book, it, it's there's a little bit of a sort of a suggestion that Wallace was almost forced by the pressure of media and public attention into marrying the Duke, that um, she she maybe, there's a feeling that she didn't, that it really ran away with her, that she hadn't quite, quite the opposite of setting her sights on him, that she was actually rather shocked when she suddenly realised she'd been backed into a corner. Is, is that how it happened? Well, um, that's certainly my opinion and, and that of several biographers. Um, I think... She was enormously flattered by the Prince of Wales' attentions. I think she set out to, you know, get him under her thumb as much as she could. And uh, he spent a lot of money on her, I mean, huge sums of money, so much so that his parents put private detectives, got MI5 to put private detectives on her to find out whether she was blackmailing them or not because he was buying her entire wardrobes at the, at the Paris shows every season and masses of jewellery. Um but uh, we don't think she was blackmailing him. We think she was just really enjoying her influence and enjoying the money he was spending on her because money was enormously important to Wallace. She'd been poor and reliant on other people all her life. And uh, she didn't like that. She definitely, the money came into it. So I think as it got more serious, she really was torn. I think Ernest was a very nice, steady, stable influence in her life. Ernest Simpson, that is, the man that she was married to at the time. But, mm. um, you know, on the other hand, there was a possible crown being dangled, and I'm sure she would have enjoyed being queen. The last thing she expected or wanted would be to become this person in exile, the Duchess of Windsor, with no role in life. I mean, they were given plenty of money by the British crown, but they just became, you know, international partygoers who sailed from continent to continent and didn't have a particular purpose anymore. And I'm sure she didn't enjoy that at all. because She's a woman that enjoyed her wealth and influence. So, no, I don't think it worked out the way she wanted, really. No, no. And it sounded also as if she rather resented the fact that Ernest settled himself quite happily with her friend. <laughs> You've a certain jealousy there. Yes. 
Indeed, yes. I mean, Mary Kirk is quite an extraordinary character in her own life, in her own right. And uh, she was Wallace's best friend from when they were teenagers. They met at summer camp and they stayed friends right all the way up to the abdication crisis. Um, and while well, she was supporting Wallace through her various crises of her life. But uh, I found out about Mary Kirk through a book about her written by her sister, Anne, um, a very strange little book in which she reproduces Mary's letters to her from London and then imagines what her reply would have been and fills in all the background to Mary's life as she knew it. But a um, very odd book that I tracked down in, in a library in America. And it, it did help me a lot in kind of capturing Mary's character and the way she spoke. So that was great. Yeah, she came over as, as a very sympathetic character and I was sad to see that in real life, her life was cut short. She only lived until 1943. I felt very sad about that. I felt she deserved to have quite a few years of happiness after the way she supported Wallace. Yes, no, I wish she had. That was a real shame. And it's not the way, this is the problem, and I seem to have slipped into this writing about real people um, and so you've got a certain, or I feel a certain responsibility to be true to the facts, but um, it doesn't always make it into the proper, into the right shape for a story. So, for example, if I'd been making up that story, of course I wouldn't have had Mary die. She's a lovely character, but um, because she's a real person, I really felt I had to reflect that in the in the story. We have given away the ending of this now, Jenny. <laughs> oh, damn. Damn, yes, sorry about that. I'll have to put a spoiler alert. Yes. <laughs> um, so you've, you've written a non-fiction book also about royal love, well, it's called Royal Love Stories, and I wonder what it is that particularly fascinates us all about royal love affairs. There is something about them, isn't there? Well, of course, yes. I mean, you know, the person that you love and decide to spend your life with or not is is one of the most fascinating things about human beings, you know, how they make their relationships work or not work. And for royals, it's just so much harder than the rest of us. They're under all this scrutiny. I mean, nowadays, it's not like the old days when, you know, actually you might have some counsellors in the room checking that the, the deed was done on the wedding night or people checking the sheets the next morning. But um, the scrutiny that, for example, Meghan and Harry are under at the moment is, is quite insufferable for her and, and really taking a lot of getting used to. Um, I think it's very hard for both of them. Um, so it's just harder to have a royal romance. There's all the protocols. There's the... You know, they, they have to be approved by the Queen in this country. You know, Harry couldn't have married Meghan without the Queen's permission, his grandmother's permission. Mm. I mean, how odd is that? Mm. So it just, mm. it throws lots of obstacles in the way of true love. And uh, so it makes it ideal fodder for writing about as a novelist. <laughs> yes, yes. You seem to have a real journalist's nose for a story. And there's one of your books which it's not quite so easy to get hold of, although it sounds fascinating, and that's the one based on the film set of The Making of Cleopatra starring Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. Um, how did that one come about? It sounds particularly fascinating. Oh, I love Elizabeth Taylor. I'm such a huge fan of hers. You know, she was beautiful, sexy, yes, but she was so witty. I just absolutely love, you know, her, it, in conversation, she was really funny. So um, one of my favourite stories is that she, after she died, she'd arranged to turn up 
15 minutes late for her own funeral so that everybody would have a good laugh because that's what she always did in life. You know, she was late for everything. (laughs) She's just a character I wish I had met. So I knew I wanted to write about her. And I'm also fascinated by that period in Rome when the paparazzi were just taking off and really putting pressure on celebrities. And at that time, she's married to somebody else. Richard Burton's married to somebody else. They appear in a film of Cleopatra where she's Cleo and he's Antony. And, you know, it happens and it's explosive and dramatic. And so, yeah, it was definitely a story I wanted to write. That was great fun to do. I was very lucky that I found an actor who'd worked because it's a long time it was 1961 62 that that was being made so I went through IMDB the film website trying everybody looking up everybody I could that worked on the film and uh, sending off emails to see if I could ask them about it and I came across an actor called John Gayford who played a centurion in the, but he was in so many scenes because he was the centurion that stood behind Richard Burton throughout so he was a fantastic source of information and you know, I'd had long telephone interviews with him and then he checked the whole manuscript for me. And he was like, no, 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 that wasn't, you know, that was around the corner from makeup and you have to walk down this way. So he made sure I got absolutely every detail right, which is a complete gift for a novelist. It was wonderful. And did you learn anything about them that surprised you while you were doing it? <laughs> well, the- Cleopatra was the film that nearly bankrupted 20th Century Fox because it was just so extravagant. They had hundreds of actors and extras kept in Rome for the entire duration of the shoot, which is 16 months. And they're all on full salary and accommodation and food. And um, they hired some elephants and they turned out to be really wild and they kept trampling on things and wouldn't behave the way they wanted to behave and didn't end up being in the film. So that was crazy. You know, the money that they were throwing at it, it really did nearly bring down 20th Century Fox. But they tried to cut back on stupid things like criticising actors for the number of paper cups they were using in the canteen. So that did make me laugh, I have to say. (laughs) I tried very hard to contact everybody who worked on the film and sent, and, you know, a lot of the emails weren't returned and it was very hard to find people. But after the book was published... I had an email from Rosemary Rosemary Mankiewicz who'd worked on the film and she'd actually met her husband, Joe, was the director there and they got together on the set. It was very, you know, all these actors and film people together for 16 months. There were a lot of romances that went on out there, not just Elizabeth and Richard and Rosemary's was one of them with Joe. And she came across my book. And so I got an email from her and I, when I saw the name, my heart stopped. I thought, oh my gosh, have I libeled her? (laughs) But fortunately she really liked it. So that was, that was great. Oh, that's fantastic. That really is. Look, turning to your wider career, just moving away from the specific books, you trained as a doctor and you've also written a good number of books dealing with health and medicine, including several co-authored on Pilates and one on diet, eat and stay young. I wondered if you had any key little health tip you'd like to give listeners what is the most important thing we can do to to live long and healthy oh my gosh I would love to give you a secret potion that I've invented myself that can make you live till 100 and not have any health problems whatsoever but if there is one I haven't discovered it myself I'm afraid I do take a multivitamin but um, you know it's just the basic eating well I do I get some exercise every day I swim every day And um, what else? Oh, there's a very, if if you suffer from any stress or anxiety or sleeping troubles, there's a little potion called Avana Sativa, 
and, and um, it's a very concentrated source of vitamin B and I use it for when I'm feeling very wound up or worried about sales of my novels or something like that. You put five or ten drops in a glass of water and swallow it and it works really quickly. So there's there's my tip for the day, Avana Sativa. <laughs> I hope you can get That's it great. Zealand. <laughs> yes, oh yes, you can get it here. In another life, I had a health company and we actually had a product with a venous sativa in it but I didn't realize well I think it was there for stress control you're right but that's lovely to have it endorsed like that actually yeah that's it good good look if there's one thing you've done more than any other in your writing career that's the secret of your success what do you suggest it would be <laughs> I don't think I'm a great example I just I'm a real swat I spend months and months and months on the research for each novel. I go through so many drafts. I mean, a ridiculous number of drafts um, and rewrite every time. I just, it's really hard work for me. And I have author friends who say, oh, we just sit down and, and the story comes out. It's almost like it's fully formed already and we just have to get it down on paper. And I'm like, no, because I really, I work ridiculously hard. For example, um, a lot of people just sit down and the story comes, but I actually plan it out in these huge long outlines that are about 35,000 words each. So I've written 35,000 words before I even start on the first sentence of the actual novel. And um, I just, I know, it's, it's, it's very sad and it's not very attractive quality of mine, but I am just a swat, I'm afraid. <laughs> Oh, I think that's putting a very negative cast on it. It sounds like that you just really totally are dedicated to getting it right. Yeah, and I'm quite perfectionist about my words. And I'll, I'll even go through a stage where I'll read the whole book out loud because that's the only way you can hear whether you've got any horribly clunky sentences in there. So, yeah, I've got lots of different stages. I'll print it out. I'll work on screen. I'll work on paper and alternate that because you see different things each time. Yeah, it's very time consuming. I'm not fast. There are some people that do two or three novels a year and I'm less than one a year at the moment. <laughs> Slipping. Yeah. Reading it aloud though is a very good suggestion if you want to have it into audiobook because you already have the flow, the natural flow. That's probably an excellent idea. It does help. And it's amazing what you spot when you're reading them out loud. Just things like, oh, hang on, I've got another character with the same name. You know, you suddenly hear it in your head and realise that. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. Look, we've, this is called The Joys of Binge Reading because we do like to hear about people who are writing series books or who that you love to read all of their works. Have, uh, I guess that in the past you might have been a binge reader yourself. And who do you like to binge read today? Oh, I binge read so much historical fiction, British, American, from all over the world, really. Um, one of my favourite authors is Hazel Gaynor. Do you have Hazel's books? No, no. Well, they probably do, but I haven't heard of her. She takes little lesser known people from history. So, for example, her latest book is called The Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter. It's about Grace Darling, who was the daughter of the keeper of a lighthouse off the northwest of northeast of England when there was a huge storm and uh, this is way back in the Victorian era and she helped to rescue some people from the boat and she became a local heroine and it took over her life it's a wonderful story but Hazel will go in and take this woman about 
and whom not much is known, and really make you love her. She makes the character come to life. You understand everything about her. So definitely, I would say, look up Hazel Gaynor if you haven't read her already. And there's another book, if I can slip it in, that I've just read this week by a woman called Elizabeth Gifford. And this is not coming out till next March. It's called The Lost Lights of St Kilda. And for those who don't know, St Kilda is an island about 100 miles off the Western Isles of Scotland, right in the middle of the Atlantic. And people lived there until 1931, when they had to be evacuated because life had just become too hard. And all their young people were leaving and the old people couldn't do the manual work that was needed to stay there. They were cut off every winter because ships just couldn't get into the harbour there because of the high seas. And that's a wonderful book as well, The Lost Lights of St Kilda by Elizabeth Gifford. I can give you loads more. I mean, I read all the time, Jenny, and uh, I've always got a, at least one book on the go, at least one research book, as well as one kind of for pleasure fiction novel by another historical fiction writer. So, yes, still my hobby. <laughs> That's wonderful that you can do it at the same time as you, because you would, you would obviously spend, you do a lot of research. Yeah. No, I don't know how I'm at. I, I, I suppose in the daytime I'll be doing the research and I've got a post, a massive post-it note habit so I can carry the book anywhere with me and I don't need to take notes as I go along. I just stick little bits of post-it note on each page. So the books end up looking like these bizarre kind of yellow hedgehoggy type things. And then I have to go back and try and remember why I put that post-it note there when I'm making up my notes. But yeah, it works. So it means that it's portable. I don't have to be sitting at my desk and writing notes the whole time. <laughs> But for your personal reading, do you still like to use paper or do you use digital readers? I do use paper for personal reading for fun, but digital readers I'll use as well for research, um, especially if a book is cheaper and it's digital. That's what I'll Yeah. And of course, I mean, so I like paperbacks because I always have a book in my handbag wherever I'm traveling because I get public transport around London and you never know when you're going to get stuck on a bus for half an hour. So you need to have a, bu a book with you. Um, but there are some authors who I would just always buy in hardback as soon as it comes out. People like Barbara Kingsolver, for example. I just, you know, I'm the one that's queuing up to get her new book the day it comes out. Oh, that's gorgeous. Look, we're starting to come to the, the end of our time together. So circling around, looking back down the aisle of the years, at this stage in your career, if you were doing it all over again, is there anything you would change? I don't, I, I don't, it's a very good question and I don't really think there is. I mean, I, I have some author friends, for example, who won big prizes with their first novel and um, and then, you know, it's quite hard to live up to that afterwards, whereas I feel mm. that I've kind of gradually built my readership mm. over the years mm -hmm. and I hope, I really hope that I'm getting a little bit better with each novel because otherwise there's no point in continuing unless you can keep improving in some way I think or I try, that's what I strive for so I think I would probably just do it the way I did it all over again and I definitely would because I love this life it's just so privileged to to get paid to make things up in your head and other people then want to read them it's the most extraordinary career but um, you know what it's like don't you as well it's just so wonderful to be read and and other people to come back to you and comment on what they've read, what they think about your ideas and about your writing. Yes. 
So what is next for Jill, the writer? What projects do you have that you're looking to, to spend time on and say in the next 12 months? Well, I have another novel coming out next summer, which is called Jackie and Maria. And um, people might be able to guess what that's about. Oh, but yes. <laughs> the story of Jackie Kennedy, Maria Callas and Aristotle Onassis. And that's coming out in August 2020. So I'll be broadcasting that. I haven't really announced it yet. This is an exclusive for you. <laughs> but because um, we haven't got the cover ready yet, so I'll probably announce it on social media once the cover's there. But uh, yeah, that's what I've been working on this year. Gus, you certainly like to focus on the icons, don't you? The iconic figures. I mean, both of those women are, are still fascinating. So that will be. Uh, perhaps the difficulty with that was how much room was there for fiction? Well, that was. it's actually been the hardest book that I've written so far because I felt I had to stick to the facts. And, and I've told the stories, I've told each of their stories from their point of view. So turn about, so it's Jackie first and then Maria and then ja and just showing how their lives began to overlap as they came into the orbit of the same man. And, uh, yeah, no, it was a very tricky one to write because I wanted to balance the stories. I wanted you to feel sympathy for both of them. And, uh, you know, one of them, clearly, you feel massive sympathy for because her husband got um, shot dead sitting beside her in a car. So, but, you know, bad things happened to Maria as well. And I'm just, I wanted to keep them very level and balanced in the way that I I wrote about them. I hope that's worked. You'll find out next summer. I'll send you one. Yes. And what is, what is the, the challenge for you of choosing these people who are already so well known? I mean, obviously, there's some thing that really draws you to these iconic women. I think there are a lot of questions in both of their lives. With Jackie, the big question is, why did she marry Onassis? Okay, he's the richest man in the world, but she had plenty of rich men around her. Um, what happened? What, and also, another thing that I bring up in the novel is that her sister Lee had been having an affair with Onassis just before she started, and that's a really odd thing to do. And Maria was still with him at the time. Um, so I just try to explain the action. I mean, everybody knows what these women did and what happened to them. But I try to explain what was going on in their heads and why they did what they did. That's that's the benefit you can have writing fiction rather than nonfiction. You can presume to know their thoughts. <laughs> so that's what I've done. I've tried to imagine what they were thinking. That'll be fascinating. I'm, I certainly would be very keen to see that one when it comes. Thank you. So you've mentioned that you get the pleasure you get from people commenting on your work and reading your work. How do you interact with your readers and where can they find you online? I am so easy to find. Um, I've got a website, jillpool.com, that I'll answer any message that you send me through the website. Um, on Twitter, I'm at jillpoolauthor. I'm on Facebook at jillpoolauthor. I'm on Instagram at jill.paul1. So, um, yeah, all over the place. I think I've got a blog site somewhere, but I have to confess I haven't blogged for a while. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, no, but I, I love hearing from readers and I always reply to them as well. It's it's just fascinating having some communication. You know, otherwise you're just sending your book out there into the world and not knowing what's happening to it. But I love it when people come back to me and tell me what they thought. And I love talking to book clubs by Skype or FaceTime. And it's so great to do this podcast for you, Jenny. You have such great questions and it's been really, really lovely. 
Look, it's been such fun. And your books are actually really, really fun reads. I mean, I guess for someone like me who's been a journalist, I, I do love books that combine fact and fiction. There's something special about knowing that that there is a, a, ba- a basic his, histor- historical accuracy about them. So, yeah, it's really, really fun. It's the best of both worlds. Oh, thank you very much. I do love doing it. So that that's great to hear. Thank you. Now, this just before we go, this swimming every day. Aha. Do I understand that that's in an outdoor pool in England? Yes, it's a natural pond on Hampstead Heath. And it's women only, which is really nice. And it's got ducks and heron and a kingfisher and moorhens and fish. And uh, we just get in the water. Um, it's becoming, it's got better known. There have been a couple of films about it. And in summer, it's quite busy now. But in winter, I mean, at the moment, the temperature is right down to 11 centigrade, which is about 52 Fahrenheit. So the numbers are thinning out. Um, under 12 centigrade, you have, you're warned that there is a risk of sudden immersion syndrome, which can be fatal if you're not acclimatised. So it's, it's, it's going down. But it's just the biggest buzz when you get into water. And, in, you know, when, when the pond is iced over, we'll melt a strip so we can still swim up and down in it. And uh, not for very long. I'd say five minutes max at that time of year. But it's it's a real buzz. It's a real serotonin high and uh, a great thing to do in the middle of the day in the dark, cold month of January when you're not getting much sunlight to zip up there and, and have a swim in the ice. It's what I love it because you, you, your head is down at the level of the ice and you can hear it singing. It's the most beautiful sound. It's great. And very social. Wow. Perfectly amazing, amazing. <laughs> it's quite it's quite an eccentric bunch of us that do the all year swimming, but they're they're all interesting women in different ways. So that that's part of the fun. Yeah. Look, that's lovely. I, I must just do it sometime to hear the ice singing. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Jill. It's been such fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Finch Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at Point 
andshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.